So last week I asked you to ask, uh, answer a question. I wanted you to be honest. I wasn't quite convinced everybody was honest. And so this week, I'm not gonna ask you a question because I don't want to put you in a position where you're not honest. So rather than ask the question that I already know the answer to, I'm just gonna assume I already know the answer. So here's my question for you. When was the last time you tried to bargain with God? See, I'm already assuming you bargain with God. Okay, I already know that you do. I do too. We all do it. What is bargaining with God? Bargaining with God is essentially something like this. God, if you will do this for me, then I will do this. God, if you will get me out of this mess that I got myself in, God, I will do this for you, or I'll, I'll start doing this for you. God, if you get me this job that I really want, God, I will, you know, and again, fill in the blank. I'll start going to church more. I'll start praying more, reading the Bible. I don't know what it'll be. God, if you provide me this money, I will give some of it to you. God, if you fix my marriage, I will serve you even more. And again, whatever it is, we all bargain with God at some, at some point. There is something in all of us that wants to somehow leverage God's power for our end. And sometimes it's legit, right? We're like Sometimes it's like, God, if you will heal my spouse, if you will heal my child, if you'll heal my parents, God, I'll do anything. God, I'll do anything if I can get you to do what I want you to do. God, if I can get you to do my bidding, I'll do anything for you. We've all done that. Today's character tries to get Jesus to do his bidding. Today's character turns out to be a pretender and thief, or really a con artist. And in the end, he becomes a traitor. His name is Judas Iscariot. Now for Judas, Jesus was actually a means to an end. See, as long as there was something in it for Judas, then he followed. And then when it wasn't working quite the way Judas wanted it, he switched teams in an effort, and this is important as we go through this morning, in an effort to get Jesus to do things his way, Judas's way. You see, we're talking about the idea of kingdoms in this series and we all are pursuing a kingdom of some sort. And for most of us, in our heart of hearts, uh, we want to pursue God's kingdom. But we often sabotage ourselves, and we find ourselves pursuing what we want, pursuing our kingdom. Or, if we're willing to pursue God's kingdom, we often try to pursue God's kingdom, getting God to do it our way, or our version of what God's kingdom should look like. Judas's story, please hear this, it's relevant to all of us. It's relevant to all of us because we all at some point try to leverage God for our means or for our ends. And when God no longer is willing to work for us or to, to follow through for us the way we want, the way we hope, the way we desire, when he won't bargain with us, some of us end up bolting, leaving, running away. Some of us here have done that, or we know people. The extreme example might be somebody reaches out to God, they pray God, they go to church, they try to do all this and trust God, and God doesn't come through for them the way they want. And then they say, that's it, I'm done, I'm finished with the God thing. We all try to leverage God and His power 
to get something that we want. Now, it wasn't just Judas who struggled with this. All the 12 disciples struggled with this. For example, are you familiar with the story or the, the story of the rich young ruler? Have you heard that story before? Uh, many of you have, found in Matthew chapter 19. And in that story, a guy comes to Jesus and he asks him a question. Hey, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, I want you to do this and this and this and this. And the guy says, hey, I've done all that. But Jesus knew his heart. And so Jesus said, okay, that's great, but I also know your heart and I know what's inside of you. And I actually, you know, know what separates you from do, uh, pursuing God. And so Jesus called it out. He said, for you, I need you to sell everything you have. Give to the poor and then come follow me. And in that passage in Matthew, it tells us that he went away, the rich young ruler went away sad and disappointed. Now, why did he do that? Why did he go away? Because he wasn't willing to make that type of sacrifice. He was willing to follow God, but he was only willing to do it on his own terms. And in that passage in Matthew 19, Peter then asked the question that all of us, at some point we ask. Matthew 19, verse 27, Peter said to Jesus, he said this, Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be? And I want to say this together, these two words. What then will there be? For us. That's the question we all ask, right? Hey God, listen, I've done this for you. God, I've followed you. God, I've hung in there. You know, I, I gave up my Sunday mornings for you. I serve you. I, I give to you. The pastor says Easter is coming and I'm going to invite people because he asked me to and I'm going to give out the cards. And the pastor said, hey, since I normally come to this service and it's going to be passed, Pack the pastor asks us to go to the first service or the fourth service, and I'm going to do what the pastor asks, God. So anyways, if you didn't catch the message, on Easter, we're really inviting a bunch of you come to first service or fourth service. It'll be packed here during these prime hours. And you say, I do those things, God. I've stopped using that type of language. I've stopped watching or looking at that. Here's what I've done, God. So, What's in it for me? What's the benefit for me? What's the blessing for me? God, what do I now get out of this? The disciples asked it. That's what Peter was asking. Judas asked it. We ask it. Because there's something in all of us, like Judas, on some level, Jesus is a means to an end for us. Now, I want to give you Judas's context for where we're headed this morning, as well as all of the other disciples, which this is going to help us make more sense out of what Judas ends up doing. The thing that he ends up doing that, that, that he's famous for, that most of us have heard the story. Some of us may not have, and this will be your first time here, but most of us, we've heard the story, but I'm going to give you his context so that you realize, oh my goodness, it's not so out there as much as I thought. So Judas and all of the other Jews that lived during his time, they had certain expectations. As they looked at their Bible, their Testament, what we call the Old Testament, they saw that God was going to send the Jewish people a Messiah, or the word we use, same word, Savior, and that he would deliver them. Specifically, he would deliver them, whoever the oppressor was at the time, and that he would set himself up and he would rule and he would reign. 
The Jews at the time of Jesus had every expectation to believe that their Messiah, their Savior, was going to be some type of military leader, that he was going to be some type of political leader, especially in light of their recent, you know, 160 years history or so. You see, about 160 years prior to this time, the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes marched into, Jeru- marched into Israel, conquered Israel, marched into Jerusalem, conquered Jerusalem around 168 BC. He walked into the temple where, you know, where, the, where God was. And he walked in there and he desecrated the holy temple by sacrificing pigs on the altar and then smearing their blood all over the place. It was an abomination to the Jews. In the Old Testament, it was called the abomination that causes desolation. And then Antiochus set up the pagan god Zeus in the Jewish temple. He then ordered the Jewish people to break their holy law by forcing them to eat pork. He also made it a law that illegal for a Jewish person to circumcise their, their young children which was the sign of the covenant for the Jewish people. And if, the, if they found out, if the Syrians found out that they circumcised somebody, it was punishable by death. Now, as a side note, for those of you who follow biblical po- prophecy, most believe that Antiochus Epiphanes was the little horn that's mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Not if you've kind of heard that story vaguely or you've heard it. So some of you, like you're like, okay, I, I know that story that he was also a type of antichrist that the Bible talks about in the last days would come. And this antichrist that would come in the last day, the Bible tells us that he would come and he would come to the rebuilt temple that's in Israel, which doesn't exist today, but in the last days it'll come, the rebuilt temple, he will walk in this antichrist and he will, do, he will cause the abomination that causes desolation, declare himself God, and then literally all hell breaks loose and if you're like a pre-trib type person, that's mid-trib, right in the middle, and then it goes whack and goes crazy. And some of you are like, yeah, 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 I, I get all that. So that's that Daniel 8. And so Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes, he's like a big deal in Scripture for the past, for what was going to happen, and then even as we look to the future, this person who would come in and do such desecration to the temple and to God's people. Well, he does this. The Jewish people, some of them rise up. Freedom fighters emerge. And the primary resistance was led by the Maccabean family. Under their leader, Judas, the, Judas Maccabees. He was known as Judas or Judah the what? The, the hammer. So Judas the hammer led the way. It was a three-year guerrilla campaign. They eventually conquered the Syrians. Judas the hammer walks into Jerusalem. He, he cleanses the temple. And some of you might know there's, there's kind of a miracle story behind that with the, with the oil and the lamp. And as a result of that miracle that happened and cleanse, Judas the hammer cleansing the temple, as a result of that, the Jewish people to this day, every year celebrate what Judas Maccabees, Judas the hammer did. And we know it as Hanukkah. And so you hear that. That, that, that Hanukkah story is all about Judas Maccabees coming in, cleansing the temple after Antiochus Epiphanes had caused the abomination that causes desolation. Now, it's 160 years after that event. Israel 
understands that story. It's a big deal. They celebrate that. Israel once again finds themselves under Roman rule. This time, it's the Romans. And and the Romans are are there, and all the people are suffering, and the Jewish people are longing for their hero, their Messiah, their Savior to show up, to arrive on the scene. And they expected that he would wage war, you know, in in the vein of Judas the hammer. And he would come in and and set them free. He 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 would cleanse the temple or even rebuild the temple. And that this Messiah Savior would then conquer and rule and reign the surrounding nations, much like hearkening back to the days of when King David and King Solomon were in charge and people from all over the world came to honor the God of the Jews. This is the context for Judas, the disciples, and all of the, Jew, all the Jewish people in the first century as it pertains to their, to their messianic expectations, their savior expectations. Nod with me if you say, I, I'm getting, I understand, I'm tracking, nod, please, nod. You, you're kind of tracking with me? You guys, you guys with me? Um, if you're not, nod the head next to you and just say, okay, we got it. I, I'm not into history. I don't care about that. Let's move on with it, Chris. Let's get going. You need to understand this though. Because Jesus now arrives on the scene. And he, Jesus was fulfilling some of these messianic savior characteristics. Jesus, like, like, like Judas the hammer, Jesus cleansed the temple a couple different times. Jesus talked about how he would build his kingdom. Jesus was in the line or the lineage of King David. So he met, you know, he met, he was from the right tribe. So in Jesus, there's this growing excitement that he's going to bring victory over these pagan oppressors and that he would usher in a time of peace where he would rule and reign. But some of what Jesus said didn't quite line up with the messianic expectations. For example, Jesus just didn't hate the Romans enough. In fact, Jesus even told people, pay your taxes to the Romans. Also, Jesus wouldn't cooperate with the religious leaders, right? In fact, he had a lot of bad to say about them. And and, and that seemed to be a problem because everybody believed in order to rise up and and rule and reign, you're going to need to have an army. You can't just have the 12 of us. Judas the hammer had an army. And so you need an army. And so you need the, the religious leaders who are the political leaders and specifically the temple leaders. You need them on your side because that's where all the money was and all the power was. We talked about that last week. If you weren't here, I encourage you to go listen. And so they, they, they knew they had to have the, the temple people behind them. After all, if you're going to wage war, what do you need? What do you need? You need money. You need a war chest. So Judas now is losing patience. He's given three years of his life to Jesus, believing he's the one who's going to come in and conquer. Going to throw down the hammer. And so he sticks around, figuring Jesus was just waiting for the right time. The assumption by Judas and others is that Jesus was going to throw off his rabbinical robe that he was going to take up the hammer, a la Judas the hammer, that he'd conquer, he'd overcome, he'd conquer, he'd overcome, and he'd control, and he'd have now the power, and then he would also reward those who are closest to him. 
Now you understand a little bit this verse I'm going to read to you. Mark chapter 10, verse 37. You and I read it by itself, and we're like, uh, uh, the arrogance of them. No, no, if you understand their context, James and John and Mark 10 just flat out ask, hey Jesus, when you're in charge, can we sit on your right and left? Because they understood we're part of the closest group of people. We want to be close to you and you're in charge and you've chosen us. Man, we want to be right there with you. Right and left. We want to help you. We want to instruct you. We want to give you wisdom and advice as you lead and rule. So, what happened? How did we get to the story that Judas is famous for? What was the breaking point for Judas to take matters into his own hands? What was the final straw? Well, Judas decided it's time to get the kingdom going. It's time to pull out the hammer. It's time to try it my way. What was the final straw for Judas? The final straw was an extreme act of generosity that put Judas over the edge. Matthew 26. Matthew 26. If you haven't turned there, turn there now. Let's try to run through the story together. Matthew 26, we're going to start in verse 6 together. It says this, while Jesus was in Bethany, Bethany's a small little village about a mile and a half from Jerusalem. He's in the home of Simon the leper. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. Now I want you to picture this. They're reclining at the table. It's a mealtime. They don't sit in chairs like you and I sit. They actually kind of lay out and they're leaning on pillows and they're leaning on their, you know, their right arm or their left arm, even leaning up against each other. And they're eating a meal and a woman walks in and she has a sealed jar, this alabaster jar. And the bottle was sealed. It didn't have like a lid. It was sealed permanently so that there would be a permanent seal. They didn't have seals like we had today. So it had to be permanently sealed to to avoid evaporation and to avoid anything getting out. And the only way to get into that jar is you would break the top off and then you would have access to the jar. She breaks the top off of that jar and and she begins to proceed to pour all of that on Jesus's head, combing it through his hair. The aroma fills the room. John tells us that that jar of perfume was worth a year's wages. Okay, so it's important to understand the context here and understand their response. Now, it's worth knowing what she could have done, what most people would do with that much, a year's wages, um, because that's kind of how you stored your wealth back then. They didn't have banks in the same way. What you would normally do is you would crack that open. You would then pour the larger jar into smaller vials. You could save some of it. You could give some of it to the poor. You could even put a little on Jesus and kind of be wise with the money, so to speak. The Bible tells us she just takes the whole thing and she dumps it on Jesus and pours it out on him. Look at verse 8, Matthew 26, verse 8. When the disciples saw this, what does it say? They were what? They were indignant. Why this? What's the word? Why this? Waste they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and even money given to the poor. Jesus realized what they were talking about, which is important to the rest of the story. And in verse 10, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? Don't bother this woman. Don't bother her. It's her perfume. She can do whatever she wants to. He goes on. She's done a beautiful thing to me. In other words, she's honored me. She's elevated my status. She's shown respect for me. 
And then Jesus says the line that we've heard many times, kind of a famous line. To this day, people even use this line, uh, even abusively, even in the political world. Matthew 26, verse 11, he said, the poor you'll always have with you. Then he says something you and I might miss. It's pretty disturbing for them. He says, you will not always have me. Oh, what do you mean we won't always have you? Verse 12, when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for what? For burial. Whoa, 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 Jesus, time out. Uh, Did you just say burial? I'm sorry, Jesus. You can't die. What good is a dead Savior? We've been waiting for this Savior to do, you know, all these Savior things. We've been waiting for you to finally pull out the hammer to restore David's kingdom once again. You can't die. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior. You're our hammer against the Romans. But the real issue for them, what they were really trying to say is, what's going to happen to us? We've been following you. You're going to die. What's going to happen to us? And then Jesus says something that I think is pretty cool. Verse 13, Matthew chapter 26, he says, Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now this story about the woman breaking the jar, pouring it on Jesus, preparing him for his his funeral, his burial, I'm curious, if, if you've heard this story before prior to this morning, raise your hand. Just like Jesus said, just like Jesus prophesied, that this story's been taking place all throughout the world and people have been telling it for 2,000 years. Now, John gives us a little more detail. Turn over to John 12. John 12. He tells us really what's going on here that, that Matthew didn't tell us about. He tells us who's behind the complaint. John 12, it says this, verse four. He says, John chapter 12, verse four, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. Oh, that's pretty awesome, actually. Judas has a heart for poor people. He cares. I mean, this is a guy who has compassion, right? Oh, wait, let me read the next verse. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money, he used to help himself to what was put into it. You need to understand this story right here. This is the final straw for Judas. Jesus, you're supposedly the Messiah, the Savior. You're supposed to come in. You're supposed to conquer. Just like Judas the hammer. You're supposed to set us free. You're supposed to throw off the Roman Empire. You're supposed to restore Israel to its greatness. And here, you're allowing this money that we need to wage war. You're allowing the money to be wasted. Jesus, you've lost perspective. Jesus, you don't understand. Your way, this kind of way, Jesus, it's not working. How about I step in and get things rolling? Matthew chapter 26, verse 14. You still have your hand there. We're going to go back. Jesus, Matthew tells us right at that moment, At this event at Bethany, verse 14, Judas Iscariot went to the high priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of what? Silver. So I have with me this morning, this is actual real silver coins. 
okay? There are guards who are around me. You don't know which ones they are. I'm just telling you that now. So this is 30 pieces of real actual silver. There's a lot of money here. I would imagine back then, if, if you were here last week, the 30 pieces they gave were probably the temple coins, most likely. And so, uh-oh, sorry, whoever that is. 30 pieces of silver. Now, I'm not fully convinced as I read this story and I kind of know what's happened, gonna happen. I'm not convinced he was actually giving up on Jesus. Primary logic, otherwise he wouldn't have killed himself later. I tend to think he was trying to force Jesus' hand to finally get things rolling. Maybe he, he, maybe he wasn't even thinking Jesus would get arrested or anything like that. After all, Jesus had slipped through the crowds before, right? Even when they wanted to kill him. So this is Judas saying, this is how I get kingdom stuff going. Passover, it's Pentecost. People from all over the world are coming. This is the perfect time to pull out the hammer and set up the kingdom that Jesus keeps talking about. I think Jesus must have thought either the Messiah, the Messiah gets his act together and I keep following him or I got my 30 pieces of silver my lost wages for three years of following Jesus. I think for him, either way, he figured it was a win-win. Matthew 26, verse 16, from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Little did Judas know, he was trading at that moment everything that actually mattered in his life for 30 lousy pieces of silver. What truly mattered, he was trading, he didn't know it at the time, but he was trading life that is truly life for 30 pieces of silver. He's trading God's kingdom for his version and his interpretation of God's kingdom. I, I will ask you this morning, what's your 30 pieces of silver? What have you been trading? That, that, that you've been trading God's kingdom or, God's, or your version of God's kingdom. I want you to think about that question as we continue the story. The drama begins to unfold right before their eyes. As they continue on in this, it was time for Jesus and his disciples to set up the Passover meal. They go into the city of Jerusalem. They go up to the upper room, uh, as it is called. And then Jesus does something really, really strange. He takes off his rabbinical robe. He did not pull out the hammer as they hoped. Instead, he pulled out the towel. And John tells us he pulled out that towel, he got down on his knee. And what did Jesus proceed to do? Wash the disciples' feet. As that's happening, the disciples are like, what are you doing? Peter's like, don't touch my feet. You can't touch me. Jesus is like, no, no, no. This is what I'm going to do. This is what is required. Peter's like, no, 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 no. Servants do that, not saviors. Servants wash, not saviors. Jesus says, this right here is what my kingdom is all about. We wash each other's feet. We serve others. As I have now done for you, you now go do for others. This is what the kingdom is all about. You and I, we don't get the emotion of this story, what's happening here. Because we're just kind of reading like, oh, that's nice. And we get it now on this side 2,000 years later but this was so disturbing for them. They're like, no, 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 no. I don't want to build the kingdom on a towel. I want to build the kingdom on a what? On a hammer, on power. 
Judas the hammer cleansed the temple and rid the Jews of the enemy. Not by being a servant, but by power. He was Judas the hammer, not Judas the slave. But Jesus said, my kingdom, it's all about this. The Tao. The Tao. Serving through humility and grace and love and gentleness and forgiveness. The Tao is all about grace. Here's another way you could say it. The hammer is all about truth. In fact, you've even heard the phrase, what do we try to do with people? We try to hammer the truth into them. Let me ask you a question. Has that ever led someone to Christ when you've tried to share Jesus with them? Hammering the truth into somebody, has that led someone to Jesus? No, the Bible says it's God's kindness that leads people to repentance. And how often do we live in the world today where we try to hammer people with God's truth? And we get an image and people see us who aren't in these walls and they have a terrible image of us because we're like, wow, I got to stand up on truth. Jesus said, my way, you go serve everybody. You get down on your knee and you demonstrate humility. Then Jesus says something that sends chills down Judas' spine. John 13, 21, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And Judas is like, "Uh uh-oh, busted. How'd this happen? He knows. Jesus always knows. How does he always know? John's sitting next to to Jesus here in the scene. John keeps going through. He tells us, hey, the one who dips in the bread, this is going to be the one who betrays me. Judas dips into the bread, basically saying, you're going to be the one. And then Jesus says in verse 27, John 13, what you're about to do, go and do quickly. Goes on. Nobody understood what was going on because Jesus had this little conversation with them. Judah's greedy tendencies, his desire for God's kingdom to come the way that he wanted. Whatever was going on in his heart, he got to such a bad place, the Bible even says that Satan entered him. Perhaps Judas thought, hey, if if I force Jesus, if I force his hand, if he's the Savior, it's time, Jesus, to step up. It's time, Jesus, to pull out the hammer to start the revolt against the, war, the Romans. Jesus, we're going to try doing it my way, your way. It's been three years. Let's go. Forget the towel. It's hammer time. I've wanted to say that all morning. <laughs> Judas later finds out the high priest Caiaphas turned Jesus over to uh, uh, the Roman governor Pilate. The only reason you get the Romans involved if you wanted execution to happen. Whoa, whoa. Judas is like, I I didn't expect that. I thought this was going to get things rolling. And Jesus kind of like say, all right, it's kingdom time. It's hammer time. And he's like, no. And when Jesus, Matthew 27, 3, when Judas saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. What mattered to him and was of such value to him in one moment became worthless to him the next. His greatest regret was trying to force God's hand to get Jesus to do his bidding. And some of us haven't figured that lesson out yet. And it becomes our greatest regret when we try to get God to do even his kingdom stuff our way. Matthew 27, 5, so Judas threw the money into the temple. He left, he went away, he hanged himself. Judas, to use a Jesus phrase, Judas gained a 30 pieces of silver world, but lost his soul. 
He tried to bring about God's kingdom his own way. He tried to force God's hand. He tried to bargain with God. And in the end, his attempts to try to control, it cost him everything. So let me give you a couple, uh, an application here, just a couple for us to consider as we wrap it up this morning. Whenever it is that you and I resist God, whenever we refuse to surrender to God's ways, like Judas, we're responsible for the outcome. When you and I refuse to do it God's way, we're responsible. That's what the chief, uh, that's what the chief priest said. They said in Matthew 27, he's like, hey, I want, Jesus is like, hey, take this back. And they're like, well, that has nothing to do with us. That's your responsibility. When we try to live our life, our way, God says, I give you the freedom. No problem. You're responsible for the outcome. Because apparently God will not get in the way of you and I having our way. He gives us the freedom. Even if that means we end up hurting ourselves. See, we want God in our life. We have the what's in it for me attitude that Judas has. And when things don't go as we hope and plan, we try to take over. We try to get God to do our way. And then when our way doesn't work out, we go back to God and God and say, God, help me. And God said, your way, you live with the consequences of the outcome. And that's what happened to Judas. When you try to opt for your way, when you try to bargain with God, you may think it's easier than surrender. I get that. But here's the point I hope you grab this morning. When you pursue God's kingdom God's way, when you don't try to force God's way into your life, or God's, your, God's will, your way into your life, when you don't try to force that, when you trust God, when you surrender, then God takes the responsibility for our life. And I know that can be scary, and that requires faith, but listen, it's better than the alternative of being left to ourselves and left alone like Judas. Because when we surrender to God's way, which is the way of the towel, it's the way of a humble servant. When we say, God, I surrender to you, that means you're living in God's will. It's the safest, most secure place that you could ever live. It's in the very center of the will of God. So here's my question for you this morning. Have you surrendered? Have you meant what you've maybe even prayed that God, no matter what it is, I want your way. God, that relationship, that future, that major, that GPA, the forgiveness I need to give, whatever it is, my decision or whether or not to go here or do this or to stay, God, no matter what it is, God, have your way. Whatever you're tempted to trade, it's a bad trade. Whatever your 30 pieces of silver are, it doesn't go the way you hope and the way you want. Have you surrendered to God's will, God's way? Let's pray about that.